Welcome to Watch the Media. I'm John Schrader. Lavelle, Rose up the middle, looking, cutting, shooting, go! Lavelle to the U.S. For nearly 40 years, J.P. Della Camera has been the soundtrack of American soccer on television. He called his first World Cup in 1986. JP was on the mic in 1989 when Paul Caligiuri scored the goal that put the U.S. men into their first World Cup in 40 years, off to Italy in 1990. Putting it in to Caligiuri. Beats the first man. A left-footed shot! Paul Caligiuri has scored a goal in the USA! Lead 1-0! JP is about to call his 17th World Cup when the women play in Australia and New Zealand this summer. He was on the mic when the U.S. women won one of their four World Cups. That was in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl in 1999, a game that was won famously on penalty kicks over China. Ying will go next, the first starter for China to take a penalty kick. Mia Hamm with a chance to give her team the lead. The greatest goal scorer in the world is ready. Shot in the goal. J.P. Della Camera with the call of the famous Brandy Chastain penalty kick, after which she ripped off her jersey and became an American soccer icon. You cannot have a conversation about American soccer and certainly American soccer broadcasting without this gentleman. Uh, J.P. Della Camera has been uh, the voice of World Cup for men and women for, well, more than three decades, has done nearly all of the men's and women's World Cups in the last close to 40 years. Don't want to age you, JP, uh, but it's been a while. You've been in this game for a long time, and we're going to talk about that and some other things. And thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. When you use the word decades, you've already aged me. <laughs> I, I I could say like 35, 40 years, but decades, <laughs> yeah, decades. seemed like That's it was better. That's better. kinder. Yeah. That's better. So, but it's been great. I mean, you're, I don't think I can, honestly, I don't think I'm overstating this if I say that you are uh, one of the pioneers in American sports broadcasting. Do you feel like that way? Do you feel like that's the case? 
I only feel like that when somebody mentions it, because I, I have done, you know, the body of work, it's 16 World Cups that I've done, you know, coming into this next one. And when people mention Pioneer, that's also where that makes you feel older. But I've been very fortunate, John, because, you know, to to do that many World Cups consistently is one thing, but on very much different networks, right? I mean, I did one on Turner several on ESPN, and now several on Fox. And as you know, in this business, um, it's tricky. You know, that that's why I think it's, it's going to be harder for somebody to do this again, because the rights change all the time, right? I mean, now you've got uh, a company like Apple dealing with, with MLS, you know, that changed everything, you know, took out regional television, you know, Apple took over. I mean, one day in our lifetime, I hope it's not the case, but maybe the World Cup is a, is a pay-per-view entity you know maybe it changes uh every four years with various networks so <clears throat> i i don't discount the fact that i've been very fortunate in my life to have been able to <clears throat> do the right things and be in a position where i was able to get that call from a network and do the games whether i was the lead person or just part of uh, the overall broadcast rotation so we're going to talk about some of the specifics but what do you think generally has been the key for you to to um, have such a long lasting uh, career with so many different um, uh, entities, so many different dynamics involved. Well, I, I mentioned luck, and and I again I don't discount that because you do have to be fortunate. I think that this is a relationship business as well, and um, I try not to upset people, you know, in the business. So I think when you're when you're a good guy, and that was your reputation, John, when you were in the business, you know, if you're a good guy, you'd like to think that that sometimes some good things will also happen to you. Uh, but you also have to be consistent. I think that's that's the big thing, right? Because it's just like with an athlete, um, the best athletes in the world, uh, the greatest athletes, you know, the Tom Brady's, the Michael Jordan's, the Wayne Gretzky's, didn't do it like in one year or or two years. It was the body of work. So I, I think I've been, and I'll use the word, you know, fortunate again to to be in a position where I I could be consistent. You don't rest on on laurels. You continue to work. You continue to try to be better, <clears throat> because if you if you peaked twenty years ago, you know where are you today? So we know how valuable the preparation is and it involves travel and it involves the organization and all of those things that aren't actually, it seems sort of related to sitting down for two hours and broadcasting a game. Do you still enjoy all that other stuff? You still enjoy the prep? You still enjoy the what it takes to be good mm. at this level? I do. I think that you have to like the prep. I, I tell college kids all the time about how much homework is involved. And I, I tell them, I remind them that <clears throat> you don't stop doing the homework. You know, when you're in college, you have term papers, right? Our term paper as a broadcaster is the actual broadcast, right? So uh, every game you're studying for a final, and then, you know, you do the exam. And you're never going to get 100 on the exam. You'd like to get high 90s, you know, in that exam. And we, we used to say and still do in the broadcast business that there's no such thing as a perfect game. And that's why we keep doing them. So I, I think you've got, you've got that, you know, but I think if I didn't enjoy it, the whole thing, John, I would have gotten out, right? Because 
Uh, I don't look at it as work. You and I both know that there is a lot of work involved, but we don't think of it that way. We'd like to think that we're uh, fortunate to be able to call a game or a tournament or a sporting event that we love, that we would probably go to it as a fan anyway. And now we're working in it and getting paid for it. So it's win-win. It, could you have imagined, um, well, back in 1986 when you did your first World Cup, could you have imagined how many opportunities there are now to broadcast soccer in America? No. I mean, back then, um, I was the voice for soccer. And and there was only the major indoor soccer league that was on. We had no outdoor soccer back then. So can you imagine? I mean, you couldn't watch a Premier League game. There was no MLS. Uh, unless you got a signal illegally, uh, you couldn't watch a, a Serie A game or a La Liga. There was nothing, right? It was it was indoor soccer. That's all that we had. So no one, no one, the greatest forecaster of all, whoever that is, could never have predicted this much of a soccer explosion in our country and this many opportunities for broadcasters. Did you believe, though, in 1986 and maybe something that helped you go that that there was a there was an appetite for soccer, that there would be maybe an appetite for soccer, that that pendulum was going to swing because we heard about it for how long? Yeah. America, it's diverse. America's a country of immigrants. Everybody in the world loves soccer. And we kept hearing it and hearing it. And then it happened. Did you feel that? No, it's a great question, though, because back in 86, you know, we hadn't qualified for a World Cup, right, since since 1950. So we didn't think of our national team the way we do today, you know, with the passion and the support that we have now. And, and in 86, I was not aware of a new soccer league that was going to be coming out in the near future. I was not aware that we were actually going to qualify for a World Cup. So I was just doing it because, man, I thought indoor soccer was terrific. I always wanted to be a NHL announcer. And, and that was as close to like an NHL game probably as I had gotten, like I was in minor league hockey, but, but this was like, MISL was a great league. You know, we, we had players that today would be MLS players, but there was no MLS back then. So the best players that played in this country, we had people that had played in world cups before for other nations and they were playing indoor soccer. So uh, if it, if it ended there and if, I was still broadcasting indoor soccer and that was the highest level. I would have still been having a good time with it, but you know, I wouldn't have been doing world cups and or MLS for that matter. For the record, you have done hockey and you have done NHL hockey. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, but just to put this in historical context, you're talking about 1986, right? It had been between 1950 and 1990. The men had never qualified for the world cup and there wasn't even a women's world cup at all nope. until 1991 in China. So for our young, you know, for our students, that seems like a eons ago, but really historically, that's not long. That really isn't a long period of time where this has all happened, is it? No, and in, and in 1991, they called it, if I remember correctly, the FIFA World Championship. They didn't even call it a World Cup back then. Um, they call it that now, and they reference that now, but it wasn't called the uh, Women's World Cup back in 91. The U.S. won that um, in China, 
and uh, then they came back and won in 99. I believe it was a game you called and yeah. we're going to talk about that in, in just a second. But um, so, so the U S men go to the world cup in 90 and uh, don't, don't do particularly well, come back in 94 and get to the, get to the knockout stage in a tournament that had only 24 teams. Correct. Yes. And uh, uh, give us a little bit of a kind of a flavor of of what that was, because we have a World Cup coming up in the U.S. in three more years. That's going to put that one uh, to, to shame. To, to shame. To but shame. that one was yeah. a pretty big deal in '94. Uh, it was a big deal. Yeah, uh, history will show that that World Cup in 1994, at that time anyway, had had sold more tickets, had had raised more sponsorship money than any previous event. I mean, I was at the World Cup final, not broadcasting it in 1990 in Italy. There were empty seats beside me, John, and I thought, how is that possible? This is Italy, you know? But, but there were. In the U.S., every seat was taken, you know? I was calling those games on radio. Uh, there was passion in the stands. Um, you know, back then, there were so many Americans. I mean, forget about people that um, were born in other countries and now live here. There were like American-born fans that were really into it, right? Our, our soccer culture was growing. And, you know, I get offended when people say we're not a soccer nation. Yes, we are. But we're also a basketball nation, a football nation, a hockey nation, uh, you name it nation. You know, that's us, right? Whereas if you go to other countries... Uh, you know, if you're in Argentina, yes, it's a soccer nation, but they don't have the other sports, right? Yeah. Um, our country is is so big and so diverse, but we are and have been for a long time a soccer nation. So um, people who say that now, um, that's not factual. Yeah. JP Della Camera plies his trade now on Fox and uh, other places and uh, has been doing soccer in America for a while. How about that? There's a good I, I like that one better. A I like while. that better. Thank I'm John you. Schrader. Um, where did this start? Where did you get this idea that one day you were going to be a uh, soccer announcer? How did that happen? Um, it started by me wanting to be an NHL announcer, and I worked in minor league hockey for, uh, I'm going to say, 10 years. And I saw a lot of my friends graduate to the NHL. At that time, it was a much um, smaller league. So the opportunities were not there. It's not like today where you have more than 30 teams. Uh, and in those days, just like today, NHL announcers kept those jobs forever, you know, for for decades, as you had said before. So uh, after 10 years in the minors, I was made aware of a new sport, you know, indoor soccer. I was in Erie, Pennsylvania at the time, two hours away from Pittsburgh. And I thought, you know, if I could get this job, it's indoor soccer. It's like hockey on grass. It's a major market. I'll be on a um, major television station and or radio station in Pittsburgh. Uh, I had no aspirations of getting the NHL job because Mike Lang, who is one of the greatest voices of all time, was the Penguins announcer. So I had no thought at all that that job was ever going to open. Uh, so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll try the indoor soccer. And from there... It led to a, a deal with Budweiser, Bud Sports, who happened to have the rights for the 1986 World Cup. And a very good announcer, Bob Carpenter, who I think is still doing maybe Washington Nationals baseball. Excellent announcer. Uh, he was excellent when he was doing soccer. He 
takes a deal to do, I want to say college basketball slash college football with another company. So he leaves. I was his backup. I fell into it. So, I mean, those are the cliff notes, but that's how I got my first World Cup, 86. How long did it take you to, I mean, a very truncated version of that. I basically talked my way into it in the 1990s and never played soccer, never broadcast soccer, sort of talked my way into it. And it took me a little while to get a feel for the game, uh, get get the 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 nuance of the game. Um, and that's when you become a better broadcaster, I think, is when you f- you feel the game. You don't just see it, but you feel it. Did that take long? Um, with indoor soccer, I, I learned a lot because – we were such a small league in comparison to like today, you know, with MLS, uh, we were smaller, less teams, you know, you built up relationships with coaches, with players, with referees. I learned more from referees in indoor soccer than maybe any other group. Uh, with regard to the outdoor game, I would say it was just repetition, John. I, I don't know that there was ever like a moment where I thought, you know, I've got this or, uh Wow, that's interesting. But I think it's it was like all of the reps. And and then when you start to do it, uh, not just World Cup, but there were other there were other tournaments that we did, like they had Marlboro Cups back in the days. And if you can believe this, they were passing out uh, packages of cigarettes to fans coming in. So that's that's how far back we're going. Um, the Marlboro Cup, though, did bring other uh, teams, national teams into this country and they were televising games and and I got to do them. So it was just like repetition, repetition, repetition. Uh, And then when I went to work at ESPN International, we were doing 200 events a year. And man, if you don't get better doing 200 events a year, you're never going to get better, I would say. So I think the repetition of doing all of those games, whether it was, um, Italian league games that we did, whether it was Champions League, whatever it was, you know, you're doing them every day, every other day, so many competitions. So I, I think probably in the early 90s would be where I felt like, you know, I've got this. Yeah. So a lot of our young um, students uh, watch um, European soccer matches, they watch American matches, but they're really into European soccer and they listen to a lot of English uh, style announcers. And it's a little different style than Americans. We've talked about this before. Yeah, It's a little different style than American soccer. And so what, what advice would you give to a young person about how they should learn, watch uh, and and see the games if they want to be a broadcaster? I think you can learn from, from everyone um, in English or in Spanish. For that matter, you know, we have great broadcasters uh, doing games with various networks. So I think you can learn, you know, all the good things that, that they present. The English style is different. The Hispanic broadcast style is different. The American style is different. So it's, you know, it's what you want. Like if you want to be an American broadcaster, then, you know, my suggestion is to stick to American terms and the way we call games. Um I don't call it football here. It's not football to me, you know, but I'm, I'm more of, I'm a diehard American soccer guy. I, I, I don't use the British terms. I'm not British. If I, if I went to England, I would, I would call it a pitch. I would say fixtures. I would say nil, nil, but I don't (laughs) do that here. 
because I, you know, I, I never did that. And, and maybe part of that, John, is when I started, like I said, you couldn't watch the English games. Mm -hmm. So there was no influence there. You know, it was, you know, I didn't get to know Martin Tyler until I was long into my own career. You know, and at that point, you're not going to be able to to change, you know, to change the way you call the game. So I would just say, you know, be true to yourself. Um, you can learn from anyone, both the good and the bad, you know. Um, you used to do a chart when you called games in mm -hmm. MLS. Mm -hmm. My chart is probably different than yours. Um, yours might be better in some ways. Mine might be better in some ways. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It's your chart, right? Yeah. So you take the best from somebody else. You know, there's no original ideas anymore, like on a chart, I don't think, right? So <laughs> no. uh, it's just like a tweak here and a tweak there. But for any young broadcaster, I would say um, watch as much as you can, wherever it's from. You can learn from the greats, whether it's uh, a different language or not, whether it's a different style or not. The more you watch, I think the better you will be. Go to games in person. And when you go to a game in person, look for things that, you don't normally get to look at when you're calling a game. I, there have been times where I would just watch if I was at a stadium, watch the center referee and what he does, I'm not even watching the game, but where's he going? Uh, what's his communication with the other assistant referees? There are times where I would just focus on the goalkeeper and the back line and, and where are they in position? When, when I was in Atlanta doing hockey, I once went to an NBA game and all I did was I watched LeBron James when he had the ball, when he didn't have the ball, because I knew it was greatness, but I wanted to see, you know? And so I took my eye off the game, which I could never do if I was broadcasting an NBA game. So, you know, if you do have that, um, the luxury of being able to go to X amount of games, go and, and watch something else. And especially for guys that are calling games almost exclusively off of a monitor, there's so much that you can't see. Yeah. So take advantage when you do go out to the game of everything that you can see. See, one of the things that I try to try to um, uh, share with my students is that you have to know um, the game to broadcast it, but you also have to know the broadcasting part of it. Um, look at how many great football players or great basketball players have tried to be analysts in television because they didn't figure the television part out and it didn't work. They knew the game, but they didn't know the broadcasting part. So we have to know the game and we have to know how it's presented. And that sometimes is a, is a, a balance. Um, because if you, if you have an opportunity to do a lot of stuff, you're not going to know every game as well as you know, all the other games. Yeah. But I guess your point is, is that you really need to try to know what's going on in the field. It'll make you a better broadcaster. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're talking about play-by-play, -play, and that's the difference between play-by-play -play and an analyst, right? There's very few analysts that have made the jump from a full-time analyst to a full-time play-by-play person. And there's a reason for that. Um, we're trained. Play-by-play -play people are trained. You know, we went to college. Uh, some of us had radio stations at the school or a television station, but but that was our education, whether it was two years, four years or more, right? You're trained for that. As an ex-athlete, not only are you not trained, but in most cases have never been trained. And I think the mistake that network people make is that they get a big name and they want to throw that player on with no training 
and you're setting them up to fail in some cases, there are some that are great at it, like right out of the gate. I mean, they were natural, right? So that's what separates like the greats from maybe the not so greats. But the difference between a play-by-play -play person and an analyst, I mean, I couldn't be an analyst because you really should have had to play the game to, to analyze it. I would say 99 point whatever you want percent mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I couldn't be an analyst, but there's very few people that I've worked with as great of an analyst as they are that could have done play by play because it's a different skill set and you were trained for it. And it's your job as the play by play announcer to uh, understand the role of the analyst because part of your job, and especially on television, the analyst kind of is the star if they're really any good at it. Um, so it's your job to set them up, to feed them, to to work together hand in hand to make the show really good. And sometimes the analyst gets a lot of attention because it's television and uh, if they're any good at it. But but you're the person who's got to anchor this show. I, I think the best play-by-play -play people are the ones that recognize what you just said. The analyst is the star, you know, in a, in a game that's a blowout, they're not listening to me saying who has the ball, where are they going, blah, blah, blah. They want to know from the analyst what it's like, you know, what, it, what is it like to be losing in a game like this? You know, how can they get back into the game, right? It's educational. I, I did a college basketball game years ago with Nancy Lieberman, uh, Nancy Lieberman Klein, I think at that time, I, I can't remember if she used all of the names, but she was terrific. And I can't remember the two teams involved, but it was a blowout. And when I say blowout, I mean, at halftime, it might've been 40 points. And it was the first time I worked with Nancy and she said something, she probably doesn't remember this. I've never seen her since that game, but she said to me, you know, anything, you want different in the second half? And I said, Nancy, yes. I said, I, I want you to talk more as much as you can. I said, because at this point, I said, the only people that are still watching this game are people that want to learn more about the game. And that's coming from you, not me. Yeah. I think that play-by-play uh, -play people are like an orchestra leader and you're conducting. And if you have uh, an analyst beside you, a sideline person, a host, who's ever, whoever is part of that team, you know, you are leading it. And I think that the better play-by-play -play guys are the ones that recognize the star power of the analyst and recognize that you're better as a team. It's, it's never you. You know, John, when you broadcast, you probably didn't like this either. If somebody said to you, hey, you did a great job the other night, but your analyst was, you know, not so good, right? Or, or um, who yeah. was cutting? Who was cutting the cameras in that game, John? That was terrible. You sounded great, but you know that was poorly produced and directed. Yeah, yeah that's not what you want. You no. know, like you succeed as a team, or you or you fail as a team, right? Yeah. So yeah. you've got to have that mentality. So the more I don't care how much an analyst speaks, as long as they're bringing something good to the table, and you know if if you're working with somebody experienced. That's great. But there's many times where you're working with somebody that's it's their first game. It's their second or third game or it's their biggest game. And you've got to know how to make them comfortable. You have to change for them. They're not into it long enough to make a change for you. Yeah. So you're setting the tone.
and you've done lots of radio and lots of television and and uh, television is really um maybe the the greatest team sport in all of media um, yeah. if, if one little part of that, if the, you know, the equivalent of the offensive line breaks down, it's not a great show. If the quarterback can't throw the ball, it's not a great yeah. show. It's just, and when you get done with it and everything works beautifully, you know it. Yeah. Radio is so much smoother, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because um, you, you can, you have that power, right? Because you're painting a picture. I mean, radio is a more powerful medium for an announcer because of that, right? Because people, can't see what you're describing unless you describe it like so well that, you know, I've heard people say you could, you could smell the grass on a baseball field, the way Vin Scully was, you know, broadcasting a game uh, to bring up one of the real legends, you know, in our business. Mm -hmm. um, you're painting a picture on radio, right? Television, everybody sees it. So, you know, if the graphic is wrong, everybody sees it. If you call the wrong name, you know, people see it. If if anything else happens there, you know, the camera cuts to the wrong person, everybody sees it. Radio, you can cover up a lot of stuff, right? Because there are there are no graphics, there are no cuts. It's just you and the analyst. So it is a it is a different medium. And, and that's why television is more of a of a team game, like you said, because if anybody has any television experience, you know several people are in a truck. Mm -hmm. Several people are working the cameras, whereas radio, it's John, it's like you and me and a radio engineer and off we go. Yeah. And if anybody has the opportunity, if you're listening to this, uh, you see it at all, if you have the opportunity to sit in a television truck and watch the way a, uh, a sports broadcaster, any live broadcast, frankly, is produced, you will be both fascinated and astounded by the chaotic choreography that uh, that happens um, in these broadcast trucks. It's, it's awesome I, to yeah. me. It's awesome. I've recommended that to veteran broadcasters because lots of times you know we go right to the press box you know take a look at the truck when you're when you're not working you know and, and see what goes on and, and you'll have a better appreciation for the pressure and the challenge that those people in the truck face on a daily basis JP Della Camera is a broadcaster for Fox Soccer, does uh, Women's World Cup, Men's World Cup, um, also does NWSL now. Um, what else are you working on now? I think you summed it up. And I will say this for the record, he is one of the good guys, really good guys in American soccer. And uh, it's always a pleasure to chat uh, soccer with him. I'm John Schrader. So I talked about 2026 World Cup. And uh, chatted with some other people about this. I don't think there's any doubt it'll be the greatest revenue producing event, maybe in the history of humankind when it comes to sports because of the stadiums, because of the amount of money they're going to get, because there's more games. Uh, American stadiums are big. We, we spend money, all of those things. Um, can you imagine at this point, having done this since 1986, what this is going to be like in the U.S. in three more years? Uh biggest and best ever from every metric that you can name even if you just think about social media you've got three countries helping out right so it's not just the us it's the usa mexico and canada 
So, you know, you're spreading the word all over. I have no doubt that the the stands in Canada and the stands in Mexico will be full as well. The ratings will be out of sight. The time zones are favorable for broadcast, right? So you're gonna you're gonna see games, you know, at good times whenever they are. You know, it's not gonna be two in the morning games or you know dealing with anything that's overseas. Um, in America, in the U.S., we know how to do big events. So we're in some of the best buildings, some of the best venues. I mean, you know, back in '99, John. When they first started talking about the Women's World Cup, they were talking about smaller venues like college-sized stadiums. And someone, I believe it was Marla Messing, I'm giving her credit, uh, but but someone on that organizing committee, when Alan Rothenberg was in charge, um, somebody came up with, you know, Americans, we're a big-time country for sports. You know, Americans know how to promote a big event. And even though soccer at that time, uh, on the women's side, was not like uh, a guaranteed success compared to, you know, like today. Um, back then, who knew if they could, could, who thought they could fill the Rose Bowl? Like, not at that time. You know what I mean? Like, nobody would have thought that, yeah. except for those people that had the vision that said, uh, we like the big events, we can promote the big events, let's do them in the bigger stadiums. And it did. I mean, even the US players on their way to the first game in, in New Jersey, didn't know that that traffic jam was people going to their game. Hmm. They didn't know. Thought it was just yeah, New York just metro traffic. traffic huh? Beach, yeah. probably beach traffic. Oh, they were, they were going Shore? to watch them. Yeah, they were going to watch them play. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, the naivete, I guess, of us at some points uh, yeah. uh, manifests itself. Now, we, we may follow up the 26 World Cup, USA, Canada, and Mexico, with a U.S.-Mexico Women's World Cup. Um, how much of a reality could that be? Well, I think there's obviously a good shot at it. The only, the only reason it wouldn't be here is if FIFA decides, and you know they have to vote on it, um, is if they decide that you want to give it to someone else to maybe promote the game, someone that's never had it before uh, in a different part of the world. I mean, if it's dollars and cents, it'll be USA, Mexico for sure. But they may think it's it's overkill. Let's give it to somebody else. But to me, it's a it's a simple transition. Uh, you could use the same stadiums if you want. Uh, I think it'd be big for Mexico, um, bigger for Mexico than the U.S. because um, the U.S. is already in love with women's soccer. You know, Mexico is is learning to with their mm -hmm. new professional league and and their national team was not in this upcoming World Cup, which was a setback, especially since they hosted qualifying and everyone yeah. thought that that they were going to get in, you know, in an expanded field. So um, you never know when they vote. I mean, that's how we got R Russia and Qatar. So you never know Um the U.S. and Mexico will be the best bid. I think that's safe to say and the most qualified to do it. And also, you know, starting with this Women's World Cup, John, and, and the next Men's World Cup, it's the last you'll ever see of a country, a single country hosting these events. Yeah. It's yeah. it's too big, you know. Yeah. So, like, the U.S. is the only country, in my opinion, that could have hosted a 48-team men's tournament on its own. The only one. Mm -hmm. uh, I would debate it if you said there's any other country that could do that. 48, 48 teams is a lot, right? Yeah. And 32 on the women's side is a lot. And I think that 
yes, the U.S. could host a 32-team Women's World Cup, but it's much better to spread the load, right, yeah. and and split the cost and and do it with a partner like Mexico or Canada. Uh, and and Mexico is probably the choice because you know Canada's already had a Women's World yeah. Cup, and and Canada's involved in this upcoming uh, or the next Men's World Cup, as is Mexico. But I think it'll be bigger in Mexico for that reason. But we'll see how they vote. Are you one, as long as we're on the topic here, uh, who believes that the ties between U.S. and Mexico in soccer uh, professionally and nationally and regionally uh, should be tighter and that there should be more competition between the two, you you and that yes. camp? Yes. Um, I think that, again, as Americans, we love rivalries, right? And we love playoffs. And anytime the USA plays Mexico in soccer, it's big, whether it's men, women, um, under 23, under 20, Olympics, national team, whatever it is, it's big, right? Um, CONCACAF Champions League, it's big when it's um, LAFC versus Lyon or, you know, when the Sounders played against the Mexican team. Uh, it's big, right? It's a rivalry. And I don't know where it's going to go. Like MLS is doing this Leagues Cup now with Liga MX, in-season tournament. Um, if those numbers are big, and and I have no reason to think that they won't be. It's it's the start of something even bigger. I mean, there's talk that it could be a super league. Yeah. You know, they you could have MLS and Liga MX. They could be one big giant league, which would be among the bigger leagues in the world, actually. Um, you wouldn't be able to play a balanced schedule, obviously, and you'd have to figure some things out. But what's to say in X amount of years? you would have a league that had whatever number of teams you want and they don't have to play each other necessarily mm -hmm. during the season. They might, but you know, you have a big playoff when it's all over. I, I just think the dollars are there. Yeah. The appetite is there. So I can't, I can't predict that there'll be one giant league, but where there's smoke, there's fire. And there's definitely been discussion. And certainly the United States of America has lots and lots of ties culturally, demographically. There's so many Mexican-Americans in the U.S. Um, and so many generational um, ties to Mexico that it just seems so obvious. Like, yeah. why didn't we try this before? <laughs> yeah, but it's the, it's the rivalry part. Yeah, it is. You know, those USA-Mexico games, oh. those Dosa Zero, I mean, yeah. those are fantastic, right? So, you know, the more you can play USA versus Mexico in any competition, you know, I'm in favor of it. I'm involved with the major arena soccer league. Uh, myself, Shep Messing, Keith Tozer. Uh, uh, we are like the office of the commissioner. We have two teams currently in Mexico. In fact, the team in Chihuahua, Mexico is, is the defending champion now because last week they won when they beat Baltimore. And we've got a team coming in Guadalajara next year. And we strongly believe in the Mexican market. And the more times that a Mexican team can play against the U.S. team, we're all for it. Yeah, I agree. There was a time when you would have no argument that Mexico was the number one team in, in CONCACAF. It was the power in CONCACAF. Has that turned a little bit? Is the U.S. now not only in that conversation, but maybe sort of leader, leader of the pack? Yeah, it has changed in recent years, but that's based on results, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's Nations League or or a, a CONCACAF tournament, uh, but those could change again, 
right? Yeah. So I, I think that USA Mexico is always going to be, I think they'll, they will always be top two, top three. I think Canada is going to make some noise now, and that's good. We've been mm -hmm. waiting for Canada to, to step it up, and they just qualified. Even though it wasn't a good World Cup for them, they got there for the first time since 1986. And, and you can't develop consistency until you get there the first time. And, and so I think that's great for Canada. But I, I think those are the three teams with no disrespect to the Costa Ricas of the world and some other countries who are also good. I think that for the foreseeable future, those are the three teams. And it, and it could depend on a cycle basis mm -hmm. or even a year-by-year -year basis with various competitions. One of the great dynasties in world sport was created uh, 24 years ago or so when the United States won the Women's World Cup in, in Pasadena and since have won three more. So they've won four World Cups and four Olympic championships, and it has been the dominant team in, in world football for the women, for world soccer. Um, you called the game in 1999. Can you, can you kind of put some some context for us, what that single moment meant, and then what's happened since? Wow. Um, that's a deeper question. Um, I remember when it started, we didn't know what the crowds were going to be. We didn't know that they could fill the Rose Bowl, but we saw the momentum building. And I remember when it started, uh, when somebody asked me, what's the success for the U.S.? Do they have to win it? And I said, I don't think they have to win it, but they have to get to the final. And on the day of the final, somebody said to me, what's the um, definition of success? You know, if they lose, you know, and I said, no, they have to win this. <laughs> so I, I changed my mind on it because it got so big, John. It got so massive that, mm -hmm. you know, just getting to the final, you know, I said, I'd be good with it, but I didn't think the fan base would be good with it. You know, I mean, to get to a final um, in anything, Super Bowl, uh, any kind of a championship that's that's based on a one game, mm -hmm. you know, Champions League final, it's there's got to be some luck in the element, right? There's got to be something that goes your way because things could all go south in a hurry. So just to get there, I thought, would be a success, right? They had record attendance, record TV ratings, um, record revenue, and now here you are in the final. So to me, it was going to be a success anyway. But I thought at that point for women's soccer, women's sports, soccer in general, that they had to win. And, and what people have forgotten, I think, over time is that the 1999 Women's World Cup came after the 1998 World Cup in France, where the USA finished last, dead awful. last. Yeah, they were off. So this was big, yeah. you know, but... At that time, it was the most watched. Uh, it was the most watched soccer event in this country, men or women. At that time, it was the most watched women's soccer event, most watched women's sporting event. It did so much. You know, it united the country. Uh, there were people that had no idea how good the women's team uh, actually was. 
but they knew who Mia Hamm was, you know, or they knew who mm -hmm. Michelle Akers was, or Brianna Scurry, Christine Lilly, yeah, Julie yeah. Foudy. They knew the names, Brandy Chastain, you know, people that had never been to a game knew who Mia Hamm was, you know, would yeah. be wearing a Mia Hamm jersey. And I, I saw young boys, um, older men wearing Mia Hamm jerseys in Pasadena. You know, wearing them proudly. And I had never seen that before. So just to set the record straight, I, I want to make sure I, uh, I have this clear. U.S. won in 91, then won in 99 again, and they've won the last two. So basically since 91, they'd won three. And they've won the last two um, World Cups and before this 23 event will be this summer in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, I assume you'll be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, But you've called those finals you've called those championships and I think they might be the two highest rated most watched women's, maybe the most watched soccer broadcast in American history. Is that true? Um, the one in 99 was at the time 2015 broke it. Right. Um, that was in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. That, that broke everything. Mm -hmm. Um, 2019 was in Paris. So was, yeah, the timing I, I, was yeah, probably not the time different. So I, I don't think it was, but I mean, they, they said all kinds of, um, records, the way they measure things, and especially with, with social media and digital. I mean, Fox was thrilled with the way that went. And so now, you know, you've got a great storyline going in. Like, no one has ever won three World Cups, men or women, right? So, you know, can the U.S. do it? They're certainly one of the favorites. They're still number one in the world. But uh, this is not going to be an easy Women's World Cup. And truth be told, if you go back to 2019, that was not an easy one either. Those games were close. You know, if Listener doesn't stop a penalty in the England game, maybe the U.S. is not going to the final. You know, there was there were close games with some other countries. Spain played them tough. Um, it's not easy. It's 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 um, it's not a sprint. You know, it's a marathon. But once you get to the knockout stage. Yeah, you don't maybe get to that marathon. Maybe, you know, maybe it is a sprint, right? Because you're out in game four. I don't mean this to sound nationalistic. I mean this to sound uh, observational. Um, the rest of the teams in the world um, are better than they were. You know, we, we had China and Germany and Sweden and a number of teams early on, but there are a lot more really good teams in the world oh than there gosh, were yeah. even, even 10 years ago. And everybody's getting better. So maybe we're as good as we were. Maybe we're even better. I don't even know. That's your end of the business. But the rest of the world is is better at this because they put in the kind of resources into women's soccer that we started putting in 30 years ago, yeah. right? I mean, if you look around the world, England is doing very well in their domestic league now. Um, Germany, those are those are probably two of the favorites, I would say, along with the U.S. You know, you've got other countries like uh, France, Sweden, Netherlands, Brazil, Canada, Spain, if you want to deepen the pool. Uh, but when you go to any World Cup, John, whether it's men or women, there's only a handful of countries, you know, that can really win it. You know, it's not going to be, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as they call them, the minnows. You know, it's not going to be uh, a country that's qualified for their first ever men's or women's World Cup that's going to win it. It's always going to be, you know, it's there is no Leicester City at the World Cup, you know, where they shock the world. There'll be countries that will shock the world, like we saw even in the last World Cup where they'll go far. 
mm -hmm. and and farther than we thought. But to win it, you know, to get to the seventh game, to get to a final and to win it, that's it's it's tough to even get to that seventh yeah. game or yeah. sixth game or fifth game for that matter. So, you know, when I look at, you know, who could win it, um, do they have enough, you know, that can that can get them through? Um, is their goal goalkeeping good? Because to me, that's that's like the prime position. If you have a good goalkeeper, you're not conceding goals, you might get one. You can keep going. Doesn't matter what the score is, right? You can advance one nothing, one nothing, one nothing in the group stage. You can keep going that way, right? You have a good goalkeeper you've got a shot. It also helps if the front line in front of you is not allowing eight or 10 shots on your goalkeeper yes. every for, game as for well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. JP Della Camera is with us. I'm John Schrader. As we sort of wind this down a little bit, I'm going to ask you uh, maybe a, a two-part question, but you can answer them singularly. What's the still the greatest joy about this work? And then couple that with sort of what are the greatest challenges about doing this work? Wow. I th I would, I'll answer the, the last one first. Greatest challenge is just, you know, the work, the research. Um, knowing how to prep is half the battle. Um, I tell people that are working their first Olympics or first World Cup, um, just to be careful. Uh, you have to have a system first to know how to prep for this thing. Otherwise it's massive. Um, I mean, 48 teams when it comes to um, 2026, that's a lot, right? And you don't have to know those 48 teams unless you're working in the studio. Um, you don't have to study for every game, but you have to have a, a sense, you know, overall of what's going on. But the, the challenge is always going to be in the research part of it. I've done enough of them so that I, I know the system. Um, I'm not... Uh, overwhelmed by the amount of work because I, I have a system in place where I know when to start. Like I'm not ready today. If I was ready today, John, I'm not going to have a good women's world cup, right? It's way too early, far too early, but I've already started, you know, initial prep. And then it's knowing when to turn it off because if you've got three games in three days or four and four or we had five and five in Germany in 06, where we traveled every game. Um, you know, you finish one game back uh, back in a car and you're driving to another one. Uh, I mean, the, the best part about the Qatar prep was that you were back. If you had an earlier game, you were back in your hotel at nine o'clock, 9.30 at night, you know? So the, the prep time was increased because you were in your hotel more than in in other venues and other World Cups. So I think that the challenge is always going to be in the amount of research and, and how you process it. The joy is, you know, when that game is over, if if the satisfaction is there that, you know, you did the best that you could, that the game went off, as you say, it's a team game, that the game went off. It's never going to go off without a hitch, um, but you'd like to be close to it. You know, um, and and if if it's me as a broadcaster, uh, I know when I've made a mistake uh, or mistakes. You know, in a game, uh, there are times where where you're up so high at a press box level that players look like ants, and maybe if somebody's watching it on TV, they they're looking at it and they're saying, um, 
why did he call that guy Schrader? That's not Schrader. Well, you know, you're watching it on TV. You can see it better, right? So, you know, you try to minimize mistakes, try not to make the big mistakes, I would say. But the joy is always going to be, you know, when you're calling that game or that moment, you know, in a game, whether it's a final, whatever it is. And at the end of the day, you feel like you did a good job. That was a good show, you know, regardless of the score, because we're not rooting, you know, regardless of the score, you know, that was a good game. I mean, how many times, John, when you work for a, a team, somebody would say to you, that was a great show. And you knew it wasn't right. But yeah. your team won. And that's why they were saying it. Or they would say, you know what? I watched last night. That, that wasn't good. And you're thinking that was our best show all year. Yeah. But but they were rooting, you know, yeah. uh, they were rooting for the home team. So uh, the joy comes with that. And um, I'll, I'll leave you with one other thing that that people have always asked me. When I've done a big game like 1999 Women's World Cup final or something else, like they'll say, did you know at that time that the game was going to be that big? You know, did you know that that was going to be a signature moment, that that game was going to live forever? And my answer to them has always been, no, you're in the moment, you know, you're calling the game. You have maybe 5% of you realizes that USA versus China is big. But if you had asked me that day at the Rose Bowl, would people still be talking about that game decades later? Um, I would have probably said, no, nah, there'd probably be something else, you know, that would that would come. You don't realize how big it is uh, when you finish the game. You don't realize it the next day or the day after. You don't realize the full magnitude of it until 10 years later, somebody says to you, do you know what day today is? And you say, I have no idea. And they say, it's 10 years since the U.S. beat China at the Women's World Cup. You know, then you have a sense of idea. Uh, sense of an idea of just how big that moment was. And if you treat this job um, with the respect and you treat the audience with the respect and you show up for an MLS next game with the same kind of respect to do good work as you do a World Cup final, then you're ready for that moment because you've approached every game like it's I don't want to say World Cup final because that sounds kind of like hyper hyperbole, but yeah. but you know what I mean, right? You, I if do. you treat everyone with respect, then you'll get the performance that you believe you should give, and the audience expects. Yeah, I think when you do a, I think broadcasters would always like to say that you know you treat every game the same, uh, and you do to some extent, but you know a World Cup is different than calling an MLS game or an NWSL game or. Um, any game, you know, for that matter. But I remember when I first did World Cups with Tai Kyo uh, and, uh, and others, and I would come back and we'd be doing these Marlboro Cup games and there might be, you know, 5,000 people in the seats. Uh, and it may not be a big game, but you are conscious of that and thinking to yourself, you know what? I just did a World Cup game where, you know, this was like utopia. This was the greatest thing going. I can't bring it down, even though I know there's 5,000 people here, right? So you still give it a huge level of respect, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's not fair to the players if you don't. It's not fair to your audience if you don't. But just like coaches will say, like coach speak, you know, every game is the same. It's not, you know, like yeah. it's not, you know, there are bigger games for sure. 
Uh Um, And so you try to be at like this level for every game and stay consistent. But like, let's say it's a World Cup or an MLS Cup final or a Stanley Cup final or whatever it is, you know, there's definitely more. There's definitely more. You know, you feel it. You feel the energy. You feel, you know, you read about it. Everybody's talking about it. It's, It's a different vibe. Yeah. How much feedback at this point do you get and how valuable is that to you? Um, hadn't thought about that. I don't get much feedback now. I think probably because I've, I've done it so long. Um, I know in my mind, and I think you are probably this way as a broadcaster too. Um, you, you are your own worst critic, right? So I know if, if the game that I've done is not as good as I wanted it to be, you know, I misidentified two players. I, I said the wrong stat. Uh, I didn't even realize, you know, maybe I said the wrong stat, right? You're, you're spewing out X amount of thousand words. He's doing right? two hours of live yeah, television. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing is you never get too high on a, mm-hmm. on a game that you thought was, um, at a high level and you never get too low on a game that you thought um, you could have been better, right? Because things happen that are not in your control um, and you just try to make it better the next time. And and you're, you're conscious of it. Like if, if, if you've made a mistake in one game, the trick is not to make the same mistake, Mm -hmm. you know, in the next game after that. But, but for me, uh, I, I've had people say to me, this is bad. Um, I haven't heard from my boss. I've done three games. I haven't from my boss. I said, don't worry about it. And they said, what do you mean? I said, you know, if you did something bad, I said, yeah. you know, some people don't want to give you that feedback. Yeah. Um, so I'm good. I think that um, the feedback I've gotten has been um, not directly said to me, but, but by getting, by still working, I would say in this business is yeah. the, is the feedback, yeah. you know, like, being asked to do another World Cup or being asked to do NWSL games or being asked to do uh, back for Philadelphia Union for 13 years, whatever that is, to me, that's the the feedback that you get that that someone wants you to continue. JP Della Camera off to Australia and New Zealand this summer for the Women's World Cup on Fox Sports. He's missed only one World Cup since 1986. It's a pretty darn good run. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media.
Here's the French international. A cutting ball to Guevara. Set play. Oh, Amaro's got the tie goal. <laughs> Less than a half minute to go. Hit for Alvador. Crosses there for Casey. Off the post again. Cruz scores. Danny Cruz, it's 1-1. McInerney drives it. Oh, he's spreading it off the bar. Still loose. Cruz again. He scores again.